the Lord has given us the freedom here in this country, but even more importantly, those of us who know Christ, the freedom in our spirit to exercise our will to praise his name. And so with that said, let's go to the Lord who is worthy of all praise and all glory and all honor. Father, we're going to come before you today full of joy. And Lord, even if we don't feel joy so much because of um, physical ailments, because of uh, emotional issues, Lord, we know that we can rejoice because we are not to rejoice in our circumstances. We are to rejoice in you who is good. You are all good, God. And Lord, you, you bring things into our lives to make us more like yourself. And so Lord, I thank you for these things, even for the hard times. And Lord, today, as we're going to be talking about some very difficult things today, I pray that by your spirit, that you'll open up our hearts and minds and help us to understand and then to apply your word to our lives, that we may be more equipped to be the witness that you called us to be. And so, Father, bless this time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many remember way back in the day when flying on an aircraft was actually pleasant? <laughs> Way back before the days of the TSA and the security was a little bit more lax. And wearing masks, well, that was for Halloween, wasn't it? Well, I don't remember where I was going, but I'll never forget where I was a number of years ago. I was in LAX, Los Angeles International. I was waiting for my flight when two young women approached me. They had big smiles on their faces. I think I was single at the time. That was good. But they carried in their hands some pamphlets. And they began to tell me about their Hare Krishna religion. It's a form of Hinduism. Well, I listened to their spiel. And when they got done and they gave me a chance, I told them about Jesus. Now, if memory serves correctly, these pretty young ladies fairly quickly shut the conversation down. And they left as soon as they could. (laughs) Well, about an hour later, I saw them again. And they saw me. Only this time they made a wide path. One on one side, one on the other, and they passed me on by. And I begin to think, well, is it because of the way I look? Or is it because of the way I smell? See, to them, without a doubt, I let off a stench. See, Paul the Apostle says as Christians, we all give off a scent. And depending on who we are around, the scent is either a stench or a beautiful fragrance. He describes our scent this way in 2 Corinthians. For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Indeed, who is sufficient? Those of us who have come into the kingdom of Christ, who are part of the family of God, we have a brand new life. We have been spiritually raised from the dead. We no longer follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the children of disobedience. In short, we've been delivered by the deliverer. He is the king, and we owe him our total allegiance. Well, several thousand years ago, Israel was delivered as well. They were enslaved in Egypt, and with a mighty hand, Yahweh conquered their gods and brought them, brought the Israelites to the brink of entering the land he promised to give Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They were delivered by the deliverer. He was their king, and they owed him their total 
allegiance. And as we know, we're in the book of Deuteronomy, right? Today's passage is chapter 13, 1 to 18. We're going to cover the entire chapter like we've done the last couple of weeks. And that's found on page 175 in your pew Bible if you need that number. Last week we saw where Moses began to instruct all Israel in the Torah, the teaching of the ways of Yahweh. We actually are now getting into the part where the laws are being explained. And from chapters 12 to 28, Moses gives them specific instructions as to what they needed to do to please the Lord. Last week we saw in chapter 12, Moses putting first things first. What it means to offer the Lord acceptable worship. And in a nutshell, that meant that Israel was to destroy all the gods in their land. They were to smash all traces of other gods. And after all, commandment number one, the first words of the Ten Commandments was and is this, you shall have no other gods before me. And this week, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, 1 to 18, we're going to see Moses giving Israel a warning about a very likely coming spiritual pandemic. People with a horrible spiritual disease. And living among those who are in covenant relationship with the Lord, these spiritual disease carriers from all walks of life were going to spring up throughout Israel and attack it. What was that pandemic? It was a steady but abhorrent drumbeat. Let us go after other gods. Let us go serve other gods. Let us go serve other gods. Moses gives a diagnosis in these verses, and he also gives the remedy. And it's not pleasant. It involves extreme measures, like deadly disease running rampant in our bodies sometimes. Sometimes the medical team has to take drastic measures in order to save the patient. In Deuteronomy 13, 1 to to 5, we're going to see the possibility that Moses lays out of deadly spiritual disease among recognized, effective, powerful, spiritual, religious leaders. In verses 6 to 11, we find the further possibility that the disease will spread among the most intimate of relationships in homes. In verses 12 to 18, there may be spiritual disease among, quote, certain worthless fellows, which may spread in population centers in the land of promise. In short, Moses tells Israel of the very real possibility of being exposed to a deadly pandemic called idolatry. I mentioned last week that every law that Moses proclaims has to do with one or more of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, because again, the Ten Commandments is a summary statement of the Torah. So be on the lookout to see which commandment that this chapter is going to be associated with. And so Deuteronomy chapter 13, 1 to 5, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or a wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. 
because he has taught rebellion against the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you lead the way in which the Lord, your God, commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. That's pretty straightforward here. And we will see the same straightforwardness in the other two situations as well in this chapter. Well, what was the situation? False prophets or dreamers producing powerful signs or predictions, giving Israel those things, and these predictions would actually come true, and these wonders would indeed be wonderful, as it were, miracles. These prophets and dreamers have supernatural power, and they can make things happen. And certainly, it will move the people toward them. And who doesn't want to see a good miracle every now and then, right? Especially when you're the one receiving the miracle. But notice the complication. The prophets or dreamers are now exposed. Even though the miracle or prediction is powerful and accurate, it's all about how they acknowledge and from where they acknowledge the source of their supernatural power. And it isn't Yahweh. How do we know that? Because they say, let's go serve other gods. Now, that would make things difficult for those who experience the miracle and the wonder and the prediction that comes true, don't you think? See, these people, they've had a vivid experience. How many of us have had vivid experiences, right? And we just can't shake them. They're always with us. That's the same way here. But when the false prophet or the dreamer gives away what's really going on, the people now are standing at a crossroads. The people know what they're supposed to do to walk after the Lord, to express their wholehearted commitment and love to Yahweh. But the dilemma is clear. When the false prophet or the dreamer announces, let's go after other gods, the people who are under now the wicked, though powerful influence, they have a choice. And this choice is a test from the Lord. Israel, choose you this day whom you will serve. That's what God is asking here. And that's what God wants to to help them to understand where they stand with the Lord. And when that happens, and those who are who are committed to Yahweh, they will look at that prophet, they will look at that dreamer, and they will say, you know what? I'm not going to listen to anything that they say. This is what Moses told them to do. In addition, the false prophet, or that now deceptive dreamer, was to be put to death. The reason the false prophet or deceptive dreamer is teaching rebellion. Committing, as it were, high treason against the sovereign of Israel. Indeed, the sovereign of the universe. There is no, in this context, you do you, right? Or you can just follow your own heart and you can have your own God in Yahweh's sacred space. But for all those who follow the false prophet or, the, or that deceptive dreamer, the same fate awaits them as the religious leaders. The sin that God hates the most, as we've seen throughout Deuteronomy, is God. Is the people breaking covenant with Yahweh by committing idolatry. And now we understand, though, don't we, how despicable treason is, especially in our country. We have got laws against treason, don't we? And what is the penalty for treason? It is death. We understand about these things. We know that the death penalty should be meted out 
And depending on who you talk to, some people have already committed treason in our country, haven't they? But those who go to war against one's native country are guilty of treason. And for Israel, people in positions of religious authority who entice others to commit idolatry are worthy of death because they're teaching the people to commit high treason against Yahweh. And someone in Israel needs to step up and put that person to death for the honor of the king. But as difficult as it is of putting a recognized and perhaps beloved spiritual leader to death, as difficult as that is to think about, this next set of verses is even more troubling. Verses 5 to 11. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, takes you off to the side and says, hey, let's go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, or from one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him or her. Your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do such wickedness as this among you. Let's let that sink in for a moment. This is Yahweh through Moses saying this to the people. Whether the idolater is your sibling, one of your kids, your spouse, particularly wife here, or even your best friend, this person is to die. And you lead the way to do that. You're to be the first to pick up a stone. You're to be the first to throw that stone at the one that you love in an intimate relationship. And then the rest of the community is to follow suit. Quite the difficulty here. Where's the love? People might be thinking, well, you know, this is my loved one. I need to protect him. I need to shield her. I can get my loved one some help. God, are you serious with this? How gut-wrenching would this be? To prove your loyalty to the Lord, you have to out your loved one and kill him or her. And we think of even some religions today that do that. They're called honor killings, right? But as difficult as it would be if it were your loved one or mine, let's try to step back for just a second and see a bigger picture. What is the difference between a false prophet trying to entice God's covenant people to go away after other gods and your loved one, my loved one, who would do the same? Is there any difference at all except our emotional attachment to our loved one? There is no difference in Yahweh's eyes. But what is this all about anyway? Again, Moses is warning the people about a spiritual pandemic called idolatry. And if we recall, there were outbreaks of spiritual pandemics, spiritual idolatry in the 40 years of their deliverance. 
in their wanderings in the wilderness, right? From the time that Moses delivered them, God really delivered them from Egypt into the time that they were right now when Moses was speaking to the people. These people have seen how God treats those who commit high treason against his authority. It's not like he's never put people to death over these kinds of things before or told his people to do the same. You know, God loves his people. Let's let's put that out there. We know this to be true, right? You know, and what we just heard, we've got to remember that God loves his people. His love is a holy love. And God's holiness is born out of love for his glory and the people upon whom he has set his affection. In other words, those in covenant relationship with Yahweh must take into account everything he is, not just the parts they appreciate. That's just the way it is, isn't it? With the most majestic being in the universe, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, that's who he is. And having seen Moses describing outbreaks of spiritual pandemics among religious leaders or the distinct possibility at will, and even family members, let me summarize for you what happens or can happen among certain worthless fellows when they form, as I call, the League of Idolaters, LTD, in any town, Israel. In short, the people were not to shield those worthless fellows. No sanctuary city stipulations here. Instead, those in any town, Israel, who have appreciated their, quote, ministry and refuse to out them to kill these people, when a true lover of Yahweh finds out about it, he's to take drastic measures. First, he's to make sure that the rumor is not a rumor. It's not fake news. He's got to make sure that this is true. But if all things check out, then the true lover of Yahweh is to exercise zeal. And this lover of Yahweh literally goes to town. He puts everything and everyone that breathes to death. He used to destroy absolutely everything in the town, raising all the buildings down to the ground. And all this destruction is considered as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. A whole burnt offering, according to the book of Leviticus, symbolized a complete dedication of oneself to the Lord. In this case, whereas the town was in the process of committing spiritual adultery against the Lord, now, through its complete destruction, is now completely dedicated to the Lord. Nothing else there, nothing else in that space is now in rebellion against the Lord because there's nothing left. And the result of a complete destruction of this town signifies that as a nation, Israel has then repented of their sin. They have followed the Lord, what the Lord commanded regarding dealing with idolatry. And what is God's response to this? As the people have turned away from their idolatry, in the same way the Lord has turned from his commitment to destroy them. Let's look in verse 17. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand. In other words, everything that's in that town is going to be destroyed. You take none of it for spoil. That the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers. In other words, we're going to go back to business as usual. I'm going to go back to blessing you. I'm going to go back to having mercy on you. I'm going to go back to multiplying the people. 
as I am faithful to my promise. But it depends on you guys. Are you going to repent from your idolatry? As soon as you do, I'll go back to blessing you. Then in verse 18, Moses declares that putting to death those who would entice the people to commit high treason against the Lord is by definition and by description keeping all of his commands and doing what is right in his sight. In short, heinous sin calls for drastic measures. Now, this is something we don't want to hear in our day that God is love, and that's all he is. But Yahweh has never changed, has he? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what do we make of this? Christians living in the 21st century in Mechanicsville, Virginia. The real big question, right? If Yahweh has to change, are we then to go and kill others who would entice us to stop following Christ? Would we do that? Could we do that? Should we do that? Is God telling us to do that? In a word, no. Praise God for that. But it's much more severe than that. Remember the context in Deuteronomy. God's people were to physically live in the physical land. They were to physically wipe out every member. Remember this again. Every member of the seven nations who lived as squatters in Yahweh's sacred space. This emphasis is God's spiritual blessings lived out in the physical here and now world. This is what God was doing with Israel in those days. Put them there as a witness so that the nations could witness God's physical blessings upon them. Yahweh tells his people, your faithfulness to me yields many material blessings so that the nations round about you can see my blessings to you, reject their gods, and embrace my ways. This was his strategy. This was his purpose. Blessing Israel because of their faithfulness to him so that the nations around can say, you know what? I like Yahweh much better than the God that I worship. And they would want to come and then submit to the ways of Yahweh. That was his strategy back then. But as followers of Jesus living in the kingdom of God right now, the blessings of the Lord are much more spiritual than they are physical. Think about our brothers and sisters right now in Saudi Arabia. I don't know about you, but I don't think they're experiencing a whole lot of physical blessings. North Korea. The church in North Korea is alive and well. Where do they meet? And if they get found out as Christians, what happens to their family, their parents, their kids, and themselves? Physical blessings aren't there but they love the Lord. And guess what's happening in their hearts? Guess what's happening in their spirit? God is pouring out upon them spiritual blessing after spiritual blessing. And the kingdom of God, as we know, is not geographical, is it? It is spiritual. And the sun never sets on the kingdom of God, right? God's people are everywhere in this world. Obedience to the Lord, again, does not result in outward material prosperity necessarily, although sometimes yes, but great riches in the heart. The goal of our lives as followers of Jesus is not to obtain a physical inheritance, but a spiritual one. And what is that spiritual inheritance? Christ-likeness and eternal life in the next life. 
I mentioned toward the beginning of the message to be on the lookout for which commandment this law was associated with. And this chapter, like chapter 12, is obvious, isn't it? What's the commandment here that's associated with this chapter? How about number one, right? Have no other gods before me. As it was then, so it is now. As Christians, following Jesus requires that we remain absolutely loyal to him. Again, we're not talking perfect. We're talking loyalty, loyalty. We listen to no other voices, no mixture of strange doctrines. And like in Deuteronomy, ones who entice God's loyal people are to be put to death, even in 21st century America as well. But the question is, who is the one that does the destroying? And how thorough is this destruction? Jesus himself gives us the answer to this. Matthew 7, 21 and 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, the day of judgment, day of evaluation, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These words of our Lord, our Lord, the one who loves us, is deadly serious. Notice who these people are that are standing before the Lord on that day. They acknowledge his lordship. And they mention Lord twice for emphasis. They think they know him. And they are assuming that he knows them. But that's not the case, is it? They also speak of possessing otherworldly, supernatural power, prophecy, exorcisms, doing mighty works. And I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time I did a mighty work. A miracle. What about you? When's the last time you did that? Cast the demon out. But these people, many mighty works. And so if it comes to these signs and wonders and stuff, who's more spiritual, them or us? But what did the Lord say to them? Hey, I'm glad that you did these great things, right? Boy, it's, it's wonderful that you're doing all these mighty works in my name. Depart from me. I never knew. Now, notice how he qualifies this. You were workers of lawlessness. In other words, the Lord Jesus accurately diagnosed the results of their having experienced a spiritual pandemic. Their lifestyle reflected that they were not loyal to Jesus. Their lifestyle reflected a loyalty to different gods. And they lived lawless lives, lawless as Jesus defines it. So who are the false prophets in our day? In a nutshell, those who claim to follow Jesus, but twist the words of Scripture and live lawless lives. And I can't think of a more appropriate, more horrific description of this that's found in, than that is found in 2 Peter 2, 1 to 22. I'm going to have my brother James read this passage for us. But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, 
even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented in his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing and was rebuked for his own transgression a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandments delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. How sobering is this? So who does the killing of the false prophets in our day? How thorough is their destruction? God is the one who does the killing, not man. Eternal hell is reserved for them. And all who closely follow their ways will end up there as well. And Jesus said a student, when fully trained, will be like his teacher. 
And so as we begin to land the plane of this message, I want to briefly run through some false religions in our day. I'm going to be mentioning a name or two. But the most important thing is that we avoid these religions like the spiritual pandemic it is, and they are. For in them lie the deadly virus of spiritual pandemic. At the end of Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32, we see Yahweh's warning given to Moses, or through Moses, when he said, Everything I command you, you shall be careful to do, and you shall not add to it or take from it. Adding and taking away is what we want to focus on concerning these false religions. It is in adding and subtracting where the spiritual pathogen is let out for its deadly effect. So let's begin with Mormonism. Their addition is the Book of Mormon, as well as the Pearl of Great Price and the Doctrines and Covenants. Their subtraction is the reducing of the person of Christ, who he is. Bottom line here, identity of Jesus, is that they believe that Lucifer and Jesus are spiritual brothers. Jehovah's Witnesses, their addition, they add words to the Bible. Actually, a little word, the word A. Now, we know that the word A in English is what? It's an indefinite article. Now, sorry for the grammar spasm, as some people put it. Can we all understand what this means? Sitting on a pew, and we're sitting here in a building, indefinite article. But the creators of the New World Translation, that's their official Bible of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They insert the little word A in John 1.1. Here's the way John 1.1 is supposed to be read. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. New World Translation puts it this way. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was a God. That's the addition. But their subtraction is the deity of Christ. They do not believe that Jesus is God the Son. They believe he's the Son of God, but not the other way around. And you must believe that in order to be a Christian. Islam. Their addition is the Quran and the writings of Muhammad called the Hadith. They believe it was directly given to Muhammad by the dictation, and if you read it in Arabic, you're reading the Word of God, the literal Word of God. But their subtraction is the denial of the Trinity. In a passage in the Quran, this is what it says, believe in Allah and his messengers, and do not say Trinity. Stop for your own good. He is far above having a son. And there's so many other things that Islam denies concerning Christianity. Prosperity gospel is another false religion. In varying degrees, their addition is that the material blessings and happiness and good health are always God's will. They also add the term positive confession, where we can call things into existence just by speaking them, like healings and like wealth. Their subtraction is the sovereignty of God even denying that hardship can be God's will for his children. For after all, we're God's kids, and God only gives good things to his children. The social justice slash racial justice slash Black Lives Matter slash LGBTQI, etc. slash transgenderism, and so many more movements I'm lumping in together. These are roughly a neo-wedding of church and state. Whatever political correctness dictates is what the church must adopt, according to these people. The whole ball of wax has at its core atheistic, Marxist, communistic thought. 
The gospel is for them, whatever person adopts for himself is their truth. And we must listen to their voices to hear their truth. Their subtraction is the authority of God in Christ. And indeed, instead, Christ is invoked because he's useful, not because he's God. And in the name of love, we must radically accept all, regardless of what a person believes or what a person does. Chrislam is another false religion, whereas the mixing of Christianity and Islam, you may have heard this before. Its goal is a lessening of natural tensions that exist between Christianity and Islam. The addition is that Islam is absolutely incompatible with Christianity, though some Muslims, you know, they borrow things from Christianity. The subtraction is the exclusivity of Christ and salvation. Islam denies salvation through Christ. And in addition to that, Christ is a mere prophet, even inferior to Muhammad. There are many, many more false religions in our day, but you get the point. Any addition or subtraction of the truth, and we have a false teaching which leads the follower and the leader to the same destination, which is eternal hell. So what is the truth? His name is Jesus. He is the eternal Son of God, second person of the blessed Trinity, God the Son and the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity made flesh. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, as Messiah, lived a perfect life, really died on a real cross in real time and real space, and rose again three days later after he gave up his life. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and will one day return to set up his kingdom and will judge the living and the dead. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so my brothers and sisters, it is to him that we must loyally cling. We must radically reject all false teaching. We dare not add to or take away from the essentials of what makes Christianity unique and what makes Jesus as the exclusive, narrow way of salvation. In our world of increasing animosity against Christ and his people, how we need to constantly reaffirm our loyalty to Jesus and to him alone. It is time to stand boldly for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And let's not forget the last part of Deuteronomy 13, 17 where there is forgiveness and there's grace and there's mercy with him. If you've been kind of on the, on the edges or maybe you haven't even become a Christian yet or whatever, there is grace and there is mercy. But it requires repentance, doesn't it? It requires a turning back to him. It requires turning to him with a grateful heart that Christ hung on the cross and took all of our sin upon himself. And 1 John 9 tells us, 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness, not just some. Let's continually pray the prayer that David asked of the Lord. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so today I think it would be a, a very appropriate time to pull out our words of commitment 
by a, a pastor in Zimbabwe who gave his life for Christ as a martyr. We need to commit ourselves to the Lord alone. Let's use the words of this pastor. These words that we're about ready to affirm and read, they were found on his desk the day after he was martyred. The Lord Jesus may not be asking you and me to die for him like he is asking other believers around the world to do. But he is demanding of all of us who know Christ and who Christ knows to live for him. And so let me invite you to join me in reading this public declaration of our commitment to the Lord. This Zimbabwe pastor writes, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer, and labor with power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, my guide is reliable, my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preach up for the cause of Christ. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I must keep going until he comes, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. It's me every time. Is that your commitment to him? Our God and Father, this is a holy moment for all of us. We just read a declaration of a brother who was indeed outspoken. And the words that he wrote down, the words that reflected his heart, his passion, his commitment to you, to follow you regardless of the cost. Little did he know that the next day he was going to be asked of you, by you, to give his life for your sake. And Lord, you may not ask, you, not, you may not be asking any of us here in this room or even under the sound of my voice 
to give our lives physically for you as you did physically for us. But Lord, you are demanding every one of your followers to live for you. Lord, you, you told us, what will it profit a man if he gives gains the whole world and he yet loses his soul? What will he give in exchange for his soul? Lord, you told us that if anyone would come after you, we are to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow you. Lord, this is not easy. This is not what so many have understood Christianity to be, where you are a nice Jesus. You are an accepting, accommodating Jesus, where you just love everybody. It's true, you do love everybody, but you love the Father most. And regardless of how the people are going to receive you, you kept your eyes on the Father. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes upon you, regardless of how people receive us. Lord, may we live the truth. May we speak the truth, especially speak the truth in love to one another. But Lord, may we never compromise because you never compromise in your love and your commitment to the Father for us. So Father, I pray that you will help us as we go out of here to be the witness you've called us to be, to be faithful, to be loyal to you first and foremost. 